Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. The writer of Hebrews has been making a case for the supremacy, for the superiority of Jesus. Remember what we've already learned. Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses or priests. That's what we learned in chapters 1 through 7 all the way to the end of the chapter. Now over the next few chapters, the author will show the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus as the high priest of a new and a better covenant in chapter 8 verses 1 through 13. Jesus serves in a better tabernacle. That's heaven. Jesus has offered a better sacrifice. That's himself. The new covenant is based on a better promise in chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Again, all of these things were written in order to remind the reader to persevere in faith, to persevere in discipleship. So how is this new covenant different from the old covenant? The writer is going to point out to us in every way. The sanctuary is superior in verses 1 and 2. The sacrifice is superior in verses 3 and 4. The security becomes way more secure. We'll discover in verse 5 all the way to the end of the chapter. So how is this sanctuary superior? The Hebrew people had a temple here on the earth. But Jesus serves in a heavenly sanctuary. You'll have to remember that this book was written in about 68 AD. And if you could have went to the ancient world, and if you could have went to Rome, you would have seen magnificent temples. In Athens, there was the Parthenon, a magnificent temple. There were temples in what's called Asia. There, were a, there was a magnificent temple in Alexandria to Serapis. But the Jews had literally one of the most magnificent temples in the whole wide world. And in their temple, they would offer sacrifices. And the priests would offer those sacrifices. And again, this author is saying, we have a better sanctuary, verse 1. We have a better place and a better priest in verse 1. The sacrifice is better. The Levitical priests offered up 
animals. Jesus has offered up himself. Later, we're going to read that the old covenant was mediated by Moses in chapters, in in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 8. But the new agreement, the new covenant has been negotiated, mediated, if you will, by Jesus. So it begins with the superior high priest. Look in verse 1, it says, now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. You can imagine, why did it take this author eight chapters to come to the main point? It took him eight chapters to come to the main point because he had to cover some important ground. And of course, the important ground is we have such a high priest, the one who is in heaven. Now, remember, remember what you're reading and and who's reading it. The Jewish people have an impressive temple in Jerusalem. They have a high priest who offers gifts, offerings, and sacrifices. The Jew could boast of a great lawgiver, Moses. They could boast of a great temple, rich, historical, deeply important rituals, feasts, and sacrifices. I unfortunately grew up in a world that wasn't very religious. I grew up in a world where most of my instruction and training came on TV. In the ads from the 1950s and 1960s. Unfortunately, some of you are old enough to remember the commercial that goes something like this. My dog's better than your dog. My dog's better than yours. My dog's better because he eats kennel ration. My dog's better than yours. And you might be thinking, what does this commercial have to do with this? And what it has to do with this is the boast. The Jewish people, the Jews, were boasting and making fun of the Christians. And even the Jewish Christians. Because they would say, our religion's better than your religion. Our religion is better than your religion. We have a magnificent temple. You guys hide out in the tombs or in the catacombs. You meet in secret places along the side of a river. You know what? We, our our religion's better than yours because we have a magnificent temple. Hey, our religion's better than yours because we have impressive priests who wear impressive garments. And if you go to our temple, you're going to see impressive furniture made of gold. We have an impressive priesthood. We have deep, rich, historical rituals. You guys have a loaf of bread and, and, and some pressed grapes. Our religion's better than your religion. We have a more impressive place to go and we have more impressive things to do. And the Christian could say, you have the shadow. We have the substance. You have the copy. We have the real thing. You see, did they have a great sanctuary? Yes. Did they have a great temple? Yes. Did they have impressive rituals? Yes. 
You'll remember in Hebrews chapter 7, just look in the very last chapter in verse 26. Remember what the writer said, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and who has become higher than the heavens. They have a high priest in Jerusalem. You have a high priest in heaven. They have a high priest who is human and corrupt and fallen. You have a high priest who is loving, eternal. Our priest is faultless in his character. Our priest is finished in his work. Our priest is seated in the heavens. And maybe you grew up in a religious circumstance or in a religious tradition where the priests might have been accused of sexually assaulting children. And you might be thinking, that doesn't sound like a very good thing. That sounds like an awful thing. Are there religions and religious traditions where the priests are not faultless in their character or finished in their work or seated in the heavens? And so this becomes part of the point that is being made. Jesus is faultless in his character, reasonable in his teaching, harmless in his actions. Remember what the Bible says? He knew no sin, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. In him is no sin, 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. A person on, called me on the radio today and said, you know, I was taught my whole life that Jesus didn't have any sin. And then I found out in Romans chapter 8 that he's a sinner. And I go, I think I've pretty much read chapter 8 at least a hundred times. Give me the chapter and give me the verse that says he's a sinner. I can't find it right now. Well, you call me back when you find it. Let me ask you a question. How is it possible that the greatest person, the noblest person, the purest person with the greatest character who ever lived could die such an undeserved death. And we know the reason. We're the reason. You're the reason. Jesus who is seated. Why is Jesus seated? Because his work is finished. Remember the priests of Israel offered sacrifices. Again, if I could transport you back in time and we could walk up the steps that Jesus and the apostles walked up and we could go through the entry gate and we came to the, to the stoa or the marketplace of the temple and we walked through it into the court of the Gentiles and, or we went into the court of the men and then into, or into the court of the women and then into the court of the men, you would discover that you would see this incredible, impressive place and you would see the priests and they were all busy it, it wouldn't be like people just sitting around doing nothing priests offered sacrifices they offered burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and trespass offerings and the offerings represented surrender to God as well as substitution for the offerer there were grain offerings and burnt offerings that served to communicate thanksgiving and devotion to God some of the offerings were required for unintentional sin according to Leviticus chapter 4 verse 2 there was trespass 
trespass offerings required for unintentional sin against the Lord, against holy things. If you offended your neighbor, according to Leviticus chapter 5, verse 15, and, and then again in Leviticus chapter 6. And so you can imagine with this many people and that many offerings, there was always something to do. In the Old Testament, and the Old Covenant, each repeated sacrifice only served as a reminder that none of the sacrifices resulted in a finished salvation. What do you mean? People would come and give a sacrifice, well, sometimes once a year, sometimes twice a year, sometimes three times a year. And then they would have to come back year after year. They came back year after year. They came back year after year. And you know what coming back year after year and offering sacrifice after sacrifice means? It means that there was no single sacrifice that was satisfying and satisfactory. The blood of animals never washed away sin. The blood of animals never cleansed a guilty conscience. It could only cover the sin. It could only hide the sin. Until Jesus comes to take away the sin, to wipe away the sin, to forever and ever and ever cleanse the sin. You see, that's what man-made religion is very, very much like. Man-made religion is the kind of religion that you have to keep coming back to. So that you can feel a little less guilty, so that you can feel a little less empty, so that you could feel a little bit normal. But guess what? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus comes and he takes away the sin of the world. And so imagine you're talking to a person who grew up in a particular religious system or a religious circumstance. And they make the statement, well, which religion is the best religion? And you say, which religion takes away your sin forever? Is there any kind of religion like that? And you go, I only know of one thing that takes away your sin forever. That's Jesus. Think for a moment. Warren Wearsby writes, quote, Can you conceive of a high priest who is perfect morally, ministering on the basis of a covenant that could not change human hearts? Could a priest who has finished his work minister from a covenant that could finish nothing? Can we conceive of a king who is a priest in the highest heaven being limited by an old covenant that made nothing perfect? This is why Jesus is the king of a new covenant because the old covenant didn't take away your sin. It didn't cleanse your conscience. And guess what? Everything remained imperfect and incomplete. So Jesus is faultless, finished, and faithful. Jesus is enthroned in heaven. Jesus isn't simply seated. He is seated in a place on a throne in heaven. By the way, 
That truth was introduced when we first began our study in the book of Hebrews. Do you remember chapter 1, verse 3? Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He repeats it. Your savior, your priest has gone to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father. By the way, the book of Hebrews, this little book begins with that statement, continues here in in chapter 8, will be repeated again in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 and repeated yet another time in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Why all this fuss? Why all this fuss about Jesus seated on a throne in heaven? Well, because in Psalm 110, the Lord God said this, quote, The father promised his son a seat. Remember the the text? Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Why all this fuss? Because a real God promised the real Savior that Jesus would go to heaven and he would be elevated above everyone and everything. The earthly high priest in the earthly tabernacle, number one, never sat down. Number two, was never given a throne. Only the priest after the order of Melchizedek could do such a thing. And that's what we've already learned in chapter seven. So think about what's going on. There's a piling on taking place. Moral superiority, a finished work, enthroned, exalted, in heaven, taking away sin forever. My dog's better than your dog. My dog's better than... Wait, wait, which religion is better? Which religion is better? Is it a better religion that leaves you empty and guilty? And so the writer is saying that a superior covenant demands a superior location. Jesus is ascended and exalted. He's passed through the heavens, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4. He is exalted, and he is exalted as high as anyone can be exalted. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Philippians chapter 2. He's been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, everyone, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. But again, think about what's going on in the text where people go well wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute I need a religion where I have a temple and I need a religion where I have priests and I need a religion where there's golden furniture and I need I need a religion where there's rules and rituals I need a place where I can go and I can talk with my priest I need a Jesus who's here right now And the writer of Hebrews is saying, indeed you do. You need the kind of savior who can be here in the here and the now. But you also need a savior who's in heaven. Whoever lives to intercede for you. You need both. 
And see, now we begin to understand when, when we read in, in the New Testament when Jesus says, I'll never leave you or, or forsake you. I'll be with you always. I am with you. I am with you. By the way, can you imagine if your religion required that in order for God to hear from you, you had to be in Jerusalem? Last time I was in Jerusalem, my Israeli guide said, Americans, my American friends, you can talk to God here in Jerusalem. It's not a long distance call. (laughs) And of course, the right answer is, guess what? Do we have to be in Jerusalem to talk to Jesus? Do we have to be in Salt Lake City to talk to Jesus? Do we have to be in Rome to talk to Jesus? We have access to Jesus everywhere. Ryrie says, quote, a priest must have something to offer in verse 3, a sanctuary in which to do it. Christ was disqualified from using the earthly sanctuary because of his descent from from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, his sphere of service must be in heaven. And that's what the writer of, the, of, of this book of Hebrews is arguing. He's saying, you have the kind of priest who is in a different kind of a tabernacle making a superior sacrifice. Look at verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Pause. A minister of the sanctuary. That seems to be the congregation. And of the true tabernacle. You know what you should ask yourself of this text? What is that? What is the true tabernacle? What do you think the answer is? I think that there's a couple of possibilities. Let's look at the two possibilities. Possibility number one. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. It might be a reference to the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Do you remember when he looked at Peter? He said, upon this statement, who do men say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon that statement, I will build my church. This could be the church of Jesus. If this is the church of Jesus where the spirit of God dwells and where the glory of God is revealed, if this is a reference to the church, remember you are living stones. Remember the the Bible in the New Testament says, we being many are one body, we're joined and we're fitted together. You're the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. And by the way, is this a tabernacle that's built by you and built by me? No. Who actually fabricates the church of Jesus? According to Jesus, he does. By the Holy Spirit. But is it possible? Is it possible that in this context, Jesus is the true tabernacle? Because remember, Jesus also said, tear this temple down and in three days I will raise it up. And remember, they said, it took over 40 years to build Herod's temple. And you say you can just tear it down just like that and you can bring it back 
just like that. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. And remember, the Bible says that he was talking about the tabernacle or the temple of his body. M.R. Dahan in his book, Studies in Hebrews, suggests that that might be the answer. He, he writes, the tabernacle in the wilderness was called the tent of meeting. This is the place where God would meet with human beings. Jesus is the God who becomes man. Every little detail in the tabernacle spoke of Jesus. The silver spoke of redemption. The gold, his deity. The wood, his humanity. The brass, his judgment. The altar, his cross. The showbread, the bread of life. The candlestick spoke of him as the light of the world. The golden incense pointed to his high priestly intercession. Every detail had some message in type which was fulfilled in Christ. This is, by the way, will be a elaborated on in the next chapter, in chapter 9. The reason why I even bring it up is because for the Jewish person saying to this other Jewish person who's thinking about going back to Judaism, who has been made fun of, imagine, again, you're working with a, with a group of people who grew up in a religious tradition. Hey, guess what? Roman Catholics have the Vatican in Rome. Mormons have their temple in Salt Lake City. Is having a massive cathedral, is having a beautiful sanctuary impressive? It is impressive. But will a building ever serve as a substitute for what you have in Christ? What would you rather have? Would you rather have an impressive building or would you rather have an impressive savior? Would you rather have a building that you could take people to and people would ooh and awe and they would be overcome by the artwork and by the gold and the silver that decorates the sanctuary? Every Jew, every Jew would have been profoundly aware of the temple in Jerusalem. It was magnificent, and the service in that temple was impressive. Imagine the Jew. I can see my temple. I don't see the temple that you're making reference to. I can see my priest, but I don't see your priest. I can participate in the ritual but I don't understand the ritual that you do. How can anyone actually see the temple in heaven? How can anyone actually see the work in heaven? How can anyone actually see what Jesus is doing in heaven? And so the author is going to give a logical answer in verse 3, a genealogical answer in verse 4, a typological answer in verse 5. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, which one? Your high priest. Which one? The high priest who is after the order of Melchizedek. Which one? The one who is ascended into heaven. That he also have something to offer. On the earth and in the earthly temple, the high priest was authorized by the Levitical law 
to offer gifts, to offer sacrifices. We've talked about some of those things. We've talked about them, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. So what does Jesus give? What does Jesus have to offer? How does the offering of the priest on the earth correspond to the priest who is in heaven? In verse 4 it says, For if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Think about what the author is saying. Whatever it is that Jesus has to offer, it's different from what the people in the old covenant are offering. Whatever it is that they're offering, they're types, pictures, images, shadows. And so, again, if you went to Jerusalem and you watched the priest make the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering... What did all of that mean? And who did all of that point to? Christ. Jesus, the burnt offering was Jesus' total surrender to God. The grain offering speaks of his sinless humanity. It's denoted by the absence of leaven. Oil signifies Jesus born, baptized by the Holy Spirit. Believers enjoy peace with God through Jesus. In his death, Jesus bore the believer's sin in his own body. Jesus is the remaining sacrifice for sin. So now, again, what would you rather have? The religious ritual which pictures the Savior, or would you rather have the Savior? On the earth, the priests make offerings according to the law of Moses. If Jesus is on the earth, he would not be a priest according to the law of Moses, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Again, we've already talked about this. This goes back to the legal requirements. In order to be a priest in Jerusalem, you had to be descended from Aaron. You had to have the right genealogy. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. If Jesus were still on the earth, he couldn't function as a priest. But because he is in heaven, he has the opportunity to function as the priest because he's the priest who's after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal order, not after the order of Aaron. So he is able to do everything that needs to be done. Well, does this mean that Jesus has nothing to offer? Of course, that's not what it means. Remember, he has already, past tense, offered himself. Does Jesus have to die every day for you? No, he doesn't. His one death is a satisfying solution for everyone for all time. So what is the great ministry of Jesus? He's the minister of a heavenly spiritual priesthood, verse 1. He's our exalted high priest who sits at the right hand of God, verse 1. He's the minister in the true tabernacle, verse 2. He's the exalted minister who offers gifts and sacrifices. And what are the gifts and the sacrifices that he's all offering? You and me. What is the gift and the offering that he's offering? He's offering you. 
and you. He's offering you and you. He's offering each and every one of you to his heavenly father. Here's what he does. You have a priest who is a king who can extend to the true and living, the self-existent, eternal God. He can give you to him. What's the whole point of religion? The whole point of religion is on what basis can I be accepted by God? What do I have to do to have a right relationship with God? And so Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the exalted minister. Not of the temporary world. Not of the world of shadows. Jesus is the minister in the real world. You see, according to this author, the real world is the heavenly world. Why? Look in verse 5. Who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle for, he said, see, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. The writer is speaking of the copy and the shadow of heavenly things. These are called types. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, A type is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. Each type is identified as such in the New Testament. So we must not try to make every Old Testament person or event into a type. The word pattern, look at the end, See that you make all things according to the pattern. That word in this verse in the Greek language is typos or typos, from which we get our English word type. The writer is quoting Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. The Lord speaking to Moses said, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. In the book of Exodus, you'll remember the Lord invites Moses to the top of the mountain where he receives the law. But I'm going to suggest to you he receives something else as well. He receives a, a vision. A picture of heaven. He receives a blueprint of heaven. Like the book of Revelation, he sees this place where the glory of God dwells. And so he is given an invitation to make a blueprint, to make a blueprint. And copy it here on the earth so that you have a picture or a type or a pattern or a mold. Paul speaks of his own life as a pattern or a mold into which other people could be poured so they could live their life like his life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 16, the writer of Hebrews invites us to consider that the earthly tabernacle or the earthly temple, that the temple in Jerusalem and the tabernacle in, in the wilderness becomes a type and a picture of the, of the heavenly sanctuary. I want you to think of it sort of like a replica. I'm reading a book on the Parthenon and um, 
in the Parthenon, there was a gigantic statue of Athena. And according to the information that I've been reading, in Nashville, Tennessee, some crazy guy has recreated the Parthenon and he has made an exact replica of the Parthenon in Nashville. Is this an exact replica of the temple in heaven? I'm going to suggest to you, probably not. Is the temple in heaven going to be made of marble or stone? Probably not. William MacDonald writes, quote, Its layout depicted the manner in which God's covenant people could approach him in worship. There was the door of the outer court. And then there was the altar of the burnt offering. Then there was the laver. And the priests entered the holy place. And the priests entered the most holy place where God manifested himself. So what is the replica? What is the picture? It is a picture of God in relationship with humanity. Imagine you could take a picture. Again, imagine you're all the Burpo kid. You die. You go to heaven. We're on tour in heaven. You're seeing the pearly gates. You're seeing the new Jerusalem. You're seeing eternity future. And you take a snapshot in your mind of that place that you will occupy forever. And that's the point that the writer is making. Here's the point that the writer is making. Go to Jerusalem. See the temple. See the priests. See the sacrifices. See the rituals. These are all types. These are all shadows. These are mere replicas, representations of the reality. Why is all of this important? The reason why it's important is because the writer is inviting the reader not to be focused on the temple, the priests, the sacrifice, the rituals. But the reality, the reality that's in Christ. Remember what the temptation is here. Return to Judaism. Again, you may have grown up in the same religious tradition I did. Catholicism or Lutheranism or whateverism, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever ism Atheism, agnosticism, skepticism, hedonism, partying. You're all tempted to return to the life that you left because it was real and tangible. And there was something comforting about real and tangible. But here, again, the writer is making it very, very clear. In Jerusalem, there's a temple. In Jerusalem, there's priests. In Jerusalem, there's sacrifices. It all seems so real, so important, so stable. But is it really real? And the writer 
is basically saying, no, heaven is what's real. Do you remember in the New Testament when it talks about the seen versus the unseen, the eternal versus the temporal? See, you look around you and and you look at the, or you feel the seat that you're sitting on or the car that you're driving in if you're listening. Um, You look around you and, and this all looks pretty real. You'll walk outside and you'll, you'll feel the cold when you go out to your car. Some of you might scrape snow off of your car. It all seems so real. But there's going to come a time when you wake up on that very last day that you will ever wake up. You may have your last cup of coffee or your last cup of tea or your last breakfast or your last Starbucks, whatever it is. It, it will be the last one and you will draw your last breath as your, as your heart stops beating and your eyes close. And then you will see reality as it really is. Jesus is the substance, not the shadow. Jesus is the light. Not the dark shadows. And by the way, the book of Revelation gives us that glimpse. It gives us a peek into the temple in heaven. If you have a chance, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, we're given a picture of the brazen altar in Revelation 6. And in verses 9 through 11, the altar of incense, Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, the sea of glass. And as you see this sea of glass, there's this picture of seven lamps of fire in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. Jesus is ministering in that sanctuary, in heaven, the real sanctuary, the original sanctuary, not the copy. Jesus is the minister in a better place. Why choose the copy when you can have the original? Why choose the blueprint when you can have the building? Ladies, why choose the pattern when you can have the dress? And so Jesus is the superior covenant. What's the evidence? We have a superior priest, Jesus, who serves in a superior place, heaven. And by the way, the rest of the chapter will be devoted to the third evidence. Our covenant is different than the old covenant because it's based on a better promise. For the religious person who says, my religion's better than your religion. Why would you say that? We have a magnificent temple, cathedral. We have a magnificent priesthood. We have magnificent rituals. But what do you have? You have a magnificent Savior. You have a magnificent Savior who made a magnificent sacrifice. You have a Savior who can stand before God. You can have a Savior who represents you. You have a Savior who is profoundly and fundamentally different from every religion in the whole wide world. 
you have a Savior, a perfect Savior. Remember what we've learned, completely faithful and true to God, a merciful Savior who's the sacrifice for sin. He's the sacrificial lamb. Remember, that's what it says in John 1 when it says, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has to live as a man, be tempted as a man and never sin. He has to feel, sympathize and comfort and be able to help. He has to be ordained by God. He has to be the perfect author of eternal salvation. He has to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not like earthly priests. He has to be eternal. He has to be capable of an endless life. He has to be able to intercede for those who come to God. And he has to be exalted to the right hand of God. Do you know anybody with those qualifications? And so for the person who says, which religion is the best religion? You need to be able to say, which relationship will cleanse your heart, forgive your sin, reconcile you to the Father, bring you back to life? place you in heaven forever. There's no religion that will do that. Only Jesus can do that. You know, we're going to look at another type and another shadow in just a moment. We're going to have communion in just a few minutes. And when Jesus talked about communion... Again, he talked about it being a picture of himself. A picture of what he would do. A picture of his sacrifice. A picture of his love. A picture that you could hold on to. Particularly when this world seems so very, very real. And that world seems... So far away. You see, this is what coming to church and reading your Bible and praying and participating in friendship and fellowship will do. You see, this world, the one that's not real, becomes less real. And the one that is real, the one where you're going to be in the future, becomes more and more and more real because you see that which cannot be seen. You hear that which cannot be heard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would open up our ears and that you would open up our eyes. Just like the writer of Hebrews says, we would see Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. Lord, we would see Jesus, the perfect Savior who is faithful and true. We would see Jesus, who's our merciful sacrifice. We would see Jesus, who lived as a man, was tempted as a man, and who never sinned. 
we would see Jesus, our sympathetic Savior, our comforting Savior, the one who's ordained by God, the one who is the author of salvation, the one who is the priest, who is the king, the one who is capable of an endless life, the one who intercedes for us in heaven, the one who is exalted at your right hand. Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts. Lord, we pray that we could see Jesus. In Jesus' name.